Well, if you want to sing out, sing out. And if you want to be free, be free. Cause there's a million things to be. You know that there are. And if you want to live high, live high. And if you want to live low, live low. Cause there's a million ways to go. You know that there are. Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie in this episode is a special favorite of mine. This is, I can legitimately say, this is one of the rare movies that actually changed my life a little bit when I saw it. And I hold it very near and dear to my heart. And it's interesting because a lot of people hold this movie near and dear to their heart, but there are also a lot of people who have never heard of it or never seen it because it's old. And so I'm going to try to remedy that. The movie we are talking about is the 1971 cult comedy Harold and Maude, starring Bud Court and Ruth Gordon, a very quirky movie. If you've never heard of it before, I hope there are people that are listening to this who have not seen the movie before, just because I think we will have a very interesting discussion on one of the most interesting movies I've done on Staff Picks. And my co-host for this episode, he is a playwright. He uh, works for the Smithsonian Channel. He is very well-versed in musicals and uh, movies and stuff, and I'm very excited to get him on the show. I've been trying to get him on for quite a while because he has a very extensive background with this stuff. So please welcome to talk about Harold and Maude, Stephen Garvey. Hello, Mario. Very excited to be here and talk about this film. It's uh, it's been uh, it, it was kind of a life changer for me as well. So uh, we can we can talk about just uh, just how influential this film has been to us as uh, as uh, as writers, as comedians, um, and just as uh, as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we'll get into that in a second. But I want to give you a chance to kind of explain your backstory, who you are, what you do. Tell people, especially about the Barty Bunch, because I think that's very interesting. Yes. So, yeah, I'm a playwright uh, and uh, one of my uh, one of my most well-known uh, 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 plays is called The Barty Bunch. It is a uh, it is a Shakespearean uh, mashup that includes both the Partridge family and the uh, Brady Bunch sort of a meeting in a 70s sitcom world, but dealing with a lot of the tragic elements of, of Shakespearean uh, um, you know, tragedies such as Hamlet and Macbeth and uh, and others. Please tell me that Jan Brady does not get stabbed at any point. Well, she doesn't get stabbed, but she is sort of the um, the Ophelia in our story. <laughs> uh, every every Brady and Partridge takes on a Shakespearean character. And uh, as you know, Ophelia drowns. And as you know, in the Brady Bunch, there was a dunking booth in one episode. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about it. I want to do a staff pick just on the Barty Bunch. You've already intrigued me about this. Well, the whole idea, the whole inspiration for that musical was, A, you know, I grew up watching these shows, and then I went to NYU's writing school and had to read a ton of Shakespeare. So both of these, you know, you know, sitcoms and Shakespeare were swimming in my head for all these years. And and uh, but the real inspiration was that in the 70s and the 60s, when a TV show got canceled, they never got to complete their story. Every it seems like every series today, when it ends, they get their final episode where they can just, you know, sew up all loose ends and. And uh, and I wanted to give the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family, uh, you know, which were both unceremoniously canceled in 1974. 
I wanted to give them a proper send off. And what better way to do that than through the prism of history's greatest writer? <laughs> so, so they all kill each other. Is that way? I, I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil this. I'm just curious. I'm very intrigued by this possibility. I, I think you and I are going to get along smashingly, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, no spoilers, but th there certainly are a lot of deaths. It is Shakespeare. <laughs> now, before we get into that, I want to bring up something else for my listeners that Stephen and I have never met. This is the first time we've ever talked, but we already have a lot in common in two minutes on this podcast. But you also share the same curse that I do with our famous names, correct? That is correct. Professionally, my name is Stephen Garvey, but I've, I've been known to my friends and family as just Steve Garvey. But uh, yeah, my entire life, I've grown up with people asking me if I'm any relation to the Steve Garvey, the famous baseball player from the 70s with his Popeye forearms. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was uh, just a huge, huge uh, sports icon in the 70s. And growing up, people constantly would ask me if if I knew him somehow because we shared a name. And and I know you you uh, have uh, have dealt with that the same. Yeah, it was funny. Right before this podcast, I said, hey, do you know you're named after Steve Garvey? I'm like, of course, you know that how would you not know that because for people who don't know i am named after mario lanza the probably the most famous tenor opera singer of all time he was very famous back in the 40s and 50s came to hollywood made a couple of movies has two stars on the hollywood walk of fame big absolute huge star i am named after him because my mom decided i needed to have a name that would make me stand out so she's like you could be christopher but instead we'll name you after the Pavarotti of his day so everyone will ask about it your entire life so yes i i understand the pain do you have any singing abilities at all i have none and the way i explain that is because if your name was michael jordan you would not even try to play basketball you would you would embarrass yourself so i will not sing ever i just don't even try it Yes. Well, I was usually one of the last picked in gym class, so um, I, I did nothing but shame the name of Stephen Garvey. So I should say you probably have a great love for the movie Office Space for the Michael Bolton subplot. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking <laughs> <Yes>. about. <laughs> Steve Garvey here and I both very much relate to the line, why should I have to change my name? He's the one who sucks. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> okay, so now that we've established a baseline that we are basically the same person here, tell us about Harold and Maude. What is your backstory with this movie? How did you get introduced to it? Because I'm going to explain to people, Steve is one of the one of the rare hosts I've had on the show who's a little older than me. We're, this movie predates both of us a little bit, but you're actually one of the few hosts who's a little older than me. That, that is true. I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to give away my age. But, yes, uh, I came across Harold and Maude for the first time uh, when I was in college. I was a sophomore at uh, NYU. I was in their writing program. And uh, it was like a Friday or Saturday night. And uh, I was uh, flicking the channels. And I came across uh, this movie just as it was starting. It was on Bravo, back when Bravo used to show movies as opposed to cooking shows. And uh, and it just started. And, and I'm sure we're going to get into this. But the opening scene, the opening couple of minutes of Harold and Maude, uh, if that doesn't suck you in, uh, I don't know what else could. It's it's just one of the most brilliant openings uh, of a film I've ever seen. And uh, and I just sort of put the remote down and kicked up my 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 heels and just knew that I was just going to be in for the ride for the next uh, hour and a half to two hours. And uh, when it was over, it was around, you know, two in the morning. Uh, I just uh, 
it, it just cemented that I was in the right program, you know, at NYU. I was in a writing program because after seeing this, I was like, all I want to do is 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 write, um, you know, visual dramatic stories, whether it's for film, television, stage. But uh, I'm sold. I just want to I just want to write stories like this. That's such a great answer. I love that. Yeah, I, I I came about it in a much more roundabout way. And this will not surprise people at all if they've listened to the show and they know anything about me, is that I only know about this movie because of the movie There's Something About Mary. Yes! <laughs> That's the only reason I know about it. because, And it's because I, I used to say, and it's still to the, true to this day, my favorite movie is probably The Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid. And so if people who've not seen something about Mary, there's a whole subplot in there that this guy, Pat Healy, is trying to pick up this dream girl, Mary, and she's got a movie that she loves, Harold and Maude. She calls it the all-time, or the, the greatest love story of all time. And I'm like, I'd never heard of Harold and Maude. Why is she talking about this? And then Pat Healy comes in and tries to pick her up by saying he loves Harold and Maude, too. And he compares it to my favorite movie, The Karate Kid. <laughs> so that's the only reason I even know about Harold and Maude. I'm like... Is Harold and Maude great, and that's a compliment to the Karate Kid, or are they bagging on the Karate Kid by comparing it to this hack movie? So that's the only reason I checked out Harold and Maude. <laughs> so that's that's my roundabout nerd story. Again, a podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. That is amazing. But you know, you know, it, it, she's she's not wrong about it being a romantic comedy. It's it's uh, I think the is it the American Film Institute? Someone has it. Is it's it's a it's a top ten uh you know, romantic comedy of all time. Yeah, it's although that does open the question if this is a comedy or a drama, because I have long described this movie. And again, this movie is impossible to classify. I, I'm going to ask your opinion on this as well. It starts off as a comedy, but it sneaks up on you and becomes very philosophical and like affirming about life and like deep. So I've always described it as a drama disguised as a comedy. Oh, I, I always call it a black comedy because I feel like black comedy really gives you that um, it, it's, a, it's a pretty large umbrella. So you can, you know, a black comedy will, of course, go to those dark places, uh, but also allow themselves to be dramatic. But it's it's just, I guess, just in the terms of uh, of storytelling and, you know, comedies generally have the happy ending and dramas can go either way. Uh, this is just one of the most life affirming, happiest endings, uh, you know, that that so I, I always I always sort of feel like comedy. Uh, it definitely belongs in the comedy category. But, you know, just just to call it a romantic comedy would probably piss off a lot of fans <laughs> of romantic comedies. If you recommended this to, you know, someone that watches Hallmark movies and they throw this one on, they might not speak to you for a couple weeks. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's it's weird because, like, this is, I mean, legitimately a comedy. There are so many scenes in this movie that still make me laugh, and I know they're coming. I just love the comedy aspects. But, again, I do think it it kind of is an injustice to just, just to call it a comedy. And I'm just going to say, add one more thing that I, like, if there's a lot of people out there that are sad, depressed, just don't like their lives. They've kind of given up. They're just going through the motions. This movie honestly will change your life if you've never seen it it will cheer you up and make you appreciate life so much more and that's why i just think it's a disservice to just straight call it a comedy 
I I couldn't agree more. It's it's yeah, it's it's just a, it's a it's a classification that doesn't really tell the whole story. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It's one of the most life affirming films. And, you know, for a film that has as much death as it does in it, um, that's really uh, quite a trick to pull off. Although I heard a uh, wonderful description the other day. Someone said, oh, you're doing Harold and Maude. Great. You're doing the movie that invented emo kids. <laughs> I forgot who gave me that quote, but thank you for that. That's wonderful. I, I don't know if the film did or Bud Court did, but uh, <laughs> because it just seems to naturally have that in him. I, I remember I think the first thing I saw him in was Brewster McCloud. And and it's uh, it's just yeah, that that's just uh, it's just a way about him. <laughs> Okay, we're going to stop dancing around the issue. I will try to explain this movie for people who have never seen it. Now, I'm assuming most people have seen it, but how would you describe the plot of this movie to the average layperson, Stephen? Whew. That's, that's a tough one because um, you, you sort of, you know, talk about dancing around something. You kind of have to dance around the, 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 that 500-pound gorilla, you know, which is – it's a story about a love story between a 21 year old, you know, boy and a 79 year old woman. And, uh, and I guess that's, that's sort of the, you know, what people will say if they watch the trailer, but it's really, I, I would, I would just call it a story about a, a sort of about two people who meet, who are obsessed with death for different reasons and and they meet each other and 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 find the commonality between them find the differences between them and you know one who is in love with life uh sort of teaches the other one who's in love with death uh how to appreciate the time that he has on earth yeah that's a very good way of saying it. i will bluntly say i'll give you the two versions that i would say the blunt storyline here is a 20 year old is banging an 80 year old and <laughs> That kind of turns people off to the movie. And if you just read that, like when this movie came out, it was very controversial. I think a lot of people were horrified, like, oh, my God, you'd write a love story between a 20 year old and an 80 year old. But it's so much deeper than that. It's exactly like you said, Stephen, that it's a movie about life and seeing it from two different perspectives. But boy, are these two characters quirky. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly are. Well, there's there's one scene where uh, Harold's uh, psychiatrist, when he finds out about their love affair, um, says that he, he sort of compares uh, their situation as, you know, where some, uh, you know, some people have an Oedipal complex where they want to sleep with their mother. You seem to want to sleep with your grandmother. <laughs> I always forget that line is in there. That always catches me off guard. Yeah, but it's uh, it's it's uh, it's on paper. That's what it is. But uh, you, you just have to ask uh, whoever you recommend this film to to just take a leap of faith that it's it's about a lot more than that. Yeah. And there are minor spoilers in this movie. Now, I don't really cl classify this as a movie that will it will ruin it for you if we tell you the spoiler. But there's a very important plot point early on in the movie that gets established and it will become big later. So I'm just warning people right now, if you'd want to watch this blind, just go in and watch Harold Maude now. I guarantee you'll love it. It's just one of these movies I've never seen that people don't love. But we are going to give away some important pl plot points very early on in the podcast here. Yes. So, you know, you can pause this right now and then come and join us after you've seen it. Yes. And again, just before we get into it, 
a movie, this movie legitimately changed my life. And I will just give you a hint. I'll talk more about it later that I was always kind of an outcast kid. I'm just different. I was different than other people. And I just was, and I was always kind of self-conscious about it. And this movie legitimately changed my life to the point that I actually embrace how different I am now. And I don't like try to hide it. And that's what this movie does. And that's why I think this is a very valuable movie that more young people should know about because it's very, very important, the lessons that it will give you at this point in your life. That's that's so great that you say that. And it's funny because um, you found out about my love for this film on Facebook. I had just uh, seen it for the I don't know how many a time, but uh, I every Friday night I watch movies with my uh, my daughter, who's now 13. We started this when she was five. We started just watching, you know, having Friday night movies. It started with things like Nomeo and Juliet <laughs> and the B movie. But now she's 13 and now she's ready to take on some more challenging works. And uh, I was still a little hesitant to put this one on because of all of the, you know, that it goes to sort of deep places. And um, but we we watched it together and we paused it a couple of times just to kind of talk about what we were seeing and what was happening. And it was and you can just tell that it's 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 just it, it's a very impactful film for kids who are just, you know, trying to figure themselves out and where they fit in. And and this film has a ton of quirky characters. It goes beyond Harold and Maud. Virtually every character in this film is is a little bit, you know, out there. Mm -hmm. It's a very non-judgmental film too. It's 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 it doesn't it's it just takes such a humanist tone. It really is just a very it's it's just all about accepting who we are and not thinking too much about what other people think of us. And it's, there's so many important takeaways from this film that I think uh, you know you're you're right. It really you know, that, that a young kid can see this and it could really really change them. And I will reiterate again, it's again, it's a 1971 movie. It's going to be a little older than most movies you see. So like you may be turned off by, you know, the video quality of it or just the old timey look, but it really is a timeless story. Yes. And, and the, and the pacing of it, because it's a, it's a slow build. I mean, even that first scene that we, you know, made reference to earlier, it's a, there's slow builds throughout. I don't even think Harold and Maude talk to each other until 16 minutes into the film, but it's just you, you yeah you, you just sort of have to sort of you know get yourself used to the pacing of a 1971 film uh and and it's it, and the payoff always happens slow build yes but payoff is always so great yeah and i i'm assuming this is something you will probably not disagree with in the slightest one of the greatest movie soundtracks of all time oh uh, easily yes yes it's amazing Oh, it's just uh, it's it's what um, what uh, Simon and Garfunkel were to The Graduate. Cat uh, Stevens is to Harold and Maude. He is just almost a, a, a character in this film. Actually, he has a cameo in this film. Um, but uh, it's just every time one of his songs uh, comes on, usually at the beginning of a scene, it just sets the tone so well. And, and the music is, you know, lyrically and, and musically, uh, it just sets the tone so wonderfully. Yeah, and for people who don't know, Cat Stevens was a folk singer, singer-songwriter, very prevalent in the late 60s, early 70s, very uh, identifiable sound. You will know a Cat Stevens song anytime you hear it. He eventually converted to Muslim, changed his name, but he was, yeah, this movie is like the Cat Stevens commercial. And that's like you, like Steve said, it's a, uh, it's just like uh, Simon and Garfunkel in, in, uh, in The Graduate. It's so identifiable with this movie. 
Definitely. Yeah, they're, they're inextricably linked. Okay, so here we go. We will go through the plot of Harold and Maude, including what Stephen already described as one of the greatest opening scenes in movie history. And I know I said that in my White Men Can't Jump podcast. I love the opening scene in that because there's so much going on. (laughs) (laughs) This one may match that. And with that being said, because I trust you, because I know you were so much like me already, I will give you the honor of describing this opening scene to people and kind of setting the stage. Oh, well, I, I, there's no way I could I could possibly do it justice. But um, we're, we just uh, are following this you know, pair of, of feet or, or maybe you'll get legs or, or body shots or you, you don't know who exactly you're looking at. But you're just seeing the, the, the pacing of, of someone uh, walking through a room and just very meticulously preparing for something, putting on like a name tag and 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 placing uh, a vinyl record on to play. And yet, lo and behold, it's a Cat Stevens song, uh, "Don't Be Shy," which was which was written for the film. And uh, and you're just watching the the, the pacing of uh, of a character who's who's preparing to do something, but you don't know what. And then you just you just know there's some sort of ceremonial thing happening and then you see these the 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 feet of this person just sort of you know uh take a couple of uh steps up on i can't remember if it's a step ladder or or a chair chair but it's a chair and uh and then as this beautiful you know folk music is relaxing lovely music is playing the feet kick out and and this person that we've been watching uh has just hanged himself <laughs> and and you're just like oh my god and you gasp you're just like wow how how are we opening a film like this but then the door opens and this older woman comes into the room and she's sort of you know walking about and she kind of pauses and takes a look up to see the dangling figure of what turns out to be her son and then she sort of stares for a second and then moves about and she walks over very you know calmly to her phone picks it up and if i'm not mistaken she gets on the phone with a friend to reschedule a hair appointment <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's the greatest comedy movie ever that starts with a suicide but it's not a suicide that's why this movie we've called a black comedy is that it's a mother and her son very reminiscent if you know arrested development kind of like lucille and buster they sort of have that relationship. Yes. And Harold is a moody teenager. His mom is a socialite, this uh, wonderful Vivian Pickles. My, my wife's personal favorite character in this movie, by the way. She loves the mom. And one of the best names of an actress out <laughs> yes. there. Vivian Pickles. But yeah, so she sees her son has hanged himself. And apparently this is what Harold, her son, does for fun, just to get attention. He fakes suicides, and his mom is so over it. <laughs> and as she's as she's as she's changing her hair appointment he starts like just just gasping you know for air and his legs are like kicking and, and he's just like in the throes of of seizuring and 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 she's just not yeah she she won't give him the satisfaction of paying attention yes we'll find out later in the movie harold has done 15 suicides and this is what he does to get his mother's attention and his mother just very proper very british very rich and she just sees him hanging there with his tongue hanging out and she's like i suppose you think that's very funny harold Anyway, dinner at eight. And she just walks out of the room as he's dangling. 
(laughs) And it's juxtaposed over this wonderfully sweet Cat Stevens song. So, like, the suicide is so brutal and unexpected during the middle of the sweet song, and the mom just couldn't give a shit, and it's so funny. And it just, it sets the tone, it sets the relationship up uh, so well. I, I occasionally teach a class on screenwriting, and um, one of uh, there's there's two scenes. We'll get to the other one later from this film that I uh, that I always reference. And 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 one is just the importance. Uh, one you know one one of the chapters of the of the course is just about the importance of an opening scene and, and establishing tone and character and theme. And this film does it all so brilliantly in just a few minutes. And this, of course, is not the only time we will see Harold fake suicide in this movie. I think there's five or six, and they get progressively funnier and more over the top as the movie goes along. So I'm warning you, if you find that subject matter distasteful, that's the one thing you may not like about this movie, but this movie goes right for it. It does, it does, and there's a great scene where the Harold's psychiatrist um, asks him about how many suicides he's done, and he says about 15, and the psychiatrist says, "Uh, were they all done for your mother's benefit? And Harold says, no, no, I would not say benefit. (laughs) That's... (laughs) <laughs> there's about 10 quotes i always remember from the movie that's one of them that's such a great quote so we have the hanging suicide at the start and harold can't get his mom to bite and feel bad for him and then the next scene is she they're at a dinner party she has a fancy dinner party and all these socialite friends at her house and harold wants to go upstairs because he has a sore throat he just hates this life he cannot deal with this crappy rich kid socialite life again this is the movie that invented emo kids harold is very emo and he goes upstairs and now we see suicide attempt number two where he very graphically slits his wrists and his neck spread blood all over the bathroom and lays in the tub and gags until his mother comes up and he tries to shock her (laughs) i think that one actually does get to her a little bit just because it is so over the top oh harold this is too much i can't take any more (laughs) Again, we're six minutes into the movie. We've had two horribly graphic suicides, and the mom just is not up for this at all. She cannot handle her son. (laughs) It's just so good. It's so good. And then this this sort of leads into – it's – uh, Hal Ashby, who directed this, and we, we should talk about Hal Ashby a little bit. Just you know, he started off as an editor, and uh, and just the the pacing of the first ten minutes of this film, um, just just almost musical in terms of you know how he how he presents scenes, how he um, then will move to, you know, a therapist and then, you know, later, you know, to funerals. And it just there seems to be like recurring themes that are happening and the pacing of the film uh, is 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 just so great. And I, f- I feel that it's just uh, it, it sort of kicks in right after uh, this scene, because I think after the bathtub scene is the first time we see the therapist where I think the therapist asks what he does for fun. Yeah, Harold is a odd young man. He only has one hobby besides the fake suicides. Again, he's just now it's hard to describe Bud Court to someone who has not seen this movie before. How would you describe him as a actor or a character to people? Oh, it's very um, (laughs) to say understated. Uh, would be an understatement. Uh, it's it, he really. It's almost as if he's he's just been given the dialogue, and um, and is just reading it. Just a he's so 
unexpressive, but at the same time, there's something about his face. There's something about his eyes that, you know, despite what he might be saying, um, you, you, you could sort of see the, the wheels turning inside his head and, and, and what he's thinking. And, and there are a couple of, there are a couple of, uh, of, of moments that I, I swear must be improv and we'll, and we'll get to them where he'll do something, uh, that is just, uh, that just, just kind of takes your breath away, uh, where he just kind of connects with an audience, uh, in, in, in just sort of surprising ways. Yeah. And I, I should, I'd feel remiss if I did not point out, he also looks like a corpse. <laughs> He's so tall and lanky and pale. Like you totally buy him as this goth emo kid who leaves, sits in the house all day, never leaves the house. And like it, the sun has never touched him. You totally buy him. Definitely. Definitely. And he's just, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just, a, it's just, a, it's just, he's just an amazing, uh, just an amazing performer. Yeah. And it's funny cause I read other actors they considered for this part. I'm reading like Richard Dreyfuss and stuff. And I'm like, I cannot imagine this movie with anybody, but Bud Cord. It just seems so weird if it would be anybody else. Cause he's so deadpan and other people weren't like that. And Hal Ashby, I think had told him like, you know, listen, I got to warn you that, <laughs> That you might be typecast for the rest of for the rest of your career based on this film, but I have a feeling that I, I think he would have been typecast regardless. Like, there's really only a certain type that Bud Court I think is <laughs> is right to play, and uh, and this is just this is just perfect. I had heard Elton John uh -huh. was being considered for the part at one point, and in fact, that Elton John had turned. Uh, Ash beyond to to Cat Stevens. I that now this is something I got from IMDb. So I don't know if the IMDb gods are to be believed, but um, but uh, it was interesting to think that uh, that what this film would have been if Elton John had been cast in the part of Harold. It just would have been, I think, a very different movie. So wait a minute, you think Bud Court would have been typecast as the emo goth kid, and you don't think he would have branched off and done like westerns like Clint Eastwood or action movies? How dare you, sir? I kept <laughs> on Jean Claude Van Damme. Yeah, he was going to be the original, the, <laughs> yeah, right. the original muscles from Brussels, Bud Court. <laughs> so, so yeah, so Harold has committed, so faked committed suicide twice in the movie. His mom is just over it because she like throws dinner parties and stuff. Again, just think Lucille Bluth and Buster. It's perfect. And then yeah. Harold goes to the therapist, and the therapist is like, "What do you do for fun, young man?" And Harold just has this very deadpan great line, I go to funerals. <laughs> because that's literally what he does. That's what Harold does for fun. He's so obsessed with death and just, you know, the dark side of life and just he's sad and unhappy. He buys a hearse. That's what he buys with it. You know, he's a rich kid. He gets money. He buys a hearse. He just drives around to random funerals and attends them because he likes being around death. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's not just that it's, it's not enough for him to just attend funerals, but there's just like, yeah, right after he says that line of, you know, I go to funerals, we, we see him at the junkyard buying the hearse. He's just sitting there at the car wash, getting it cleaned up. And, and there he is at, uh, at, a, at, a uh, I think it's an outdoor funeral, the first one. And, and that's when, uh, I think we first meet Maud. Yeah. Maud, um, for people who don't know, played by the wonderful actress, Ruth Gordon. I am a big fan of Ruth Gordon. I know some people either love her or hate her. She's, she's, uh, kind of, uh, <laughs> she plays Ruth Gordon in most movies, but this is probably the most Ruth Gordon movie of them all. 
But yeah, I love her. But she's just this old quirky woman who attends funerals, and he sees her there, and they're gonna their paths will become more intertwined as the movie goes on. Yes, I think in this scene she's just sort of uh, at a distance. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, I can't remember if it's raining or not. No, I don't think it's raining for this funeral. Uh, but she's just sort of. Somewhere in the background, just uh, she sneezes. I think that's our introduction to her is she just, uh, you know, Harold's at a at a funeral just listening to the eulogy. He hears a sneeze and turns around and just sees this tiny little Ruth Gordon just sort of wiping her nose. And uh, and and that's really it. That's that's their first encounter. Yeah. OK, so we're going to get more Harold and Maude interactions later. But for now on, it's still just Harold and his mom and. So Harold goes home, and his mom's like, you know, I'm tired of these amateur theatrics, young man. You need to grow up. And she, she decides two things here. One, she wants him to get married, although that's coming a little later. But she also thinks he should join the army, which Harold is absolutely perfect army material, wouldn't you say? Oh, pretty, you know, just <laughs> you would really, really trust putting a gun in this guy's hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as luck would have it, Harold has an uncle, Uncle Victor, who's in the army, who's an enlister, and she sends Harold off to see him. She's like, well, you know, if you if you don't have any other plans in life, perhaps you can do this. And Uncle Victor gives him a big spiel. You can be an American hero. You can go to war. You can be like Nathan Hale. And, of course, this movie... Oh, Nathan Hale. Yes, he loved his Nathan Hale. Nathan Hale, you can be a hero. And, of course, that's the, kind of the underlying thing in this movie is that this is set and came out in the middle of the Vietnam War. So... You didn't want to go in the army right then. So this is a very big dissuader for Harold. I do not want to go into the military at all. So that will become a thing hanging over his head. Much like Ted Theodore Logan with Alaskan Military School in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, well, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, the um. I think what we would need we need to bring up about Uncle Victor though is uh, this is a, it's it's a it's a cheap sight gag, but it's so great too. Is um when when Harold's mother sends him to talk to Uncle Victor, she does mention that he was General MacArthur's right hand man, and we see uh, Uncle Victor for the first time, and he has no right arm. <laughs> Yeah, he's he just got his sleeve hanging down, but he still wants to salute because he's a military man. He's got a little string he can pull that raises his sleeve up so it will salute for him. And it's just this goofy little sight gag. It it really is, but it's just you really you really see how like everyone in in Harold's life from you know his mom to now Uncle Victor and 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 his therapist to a point they're all sort of trying to direct him. Uh, in some way to the life they think that he should be living or any life at all, because he's really doing nothing. Um, but all of their advice is just so awful. <laughs> yes. And it's capped off by our third suicide attempt, which is maybe my favorite one in the movie, the drowning sequence. Oh, yes. It's wonderful. <laughs> I, will, I will give you as a playwright, you can put images in people's heads. Please describe this scene to people. Well, this is an interesting one because I could see how it could have been shot slightly differently and worked just as effectively. But it's a uh, um, it's just starts with bam. The scene opens with just looking at Harold's face um, from an underwater camera that's just showing him face down uh, in in his pool. And then it just cuts to the, his mom. Uh, and this is, you know, in their like outdoor pool in their estate. And I think Tchaikovsky is playing uh, some very elegant, sweet music. 
and uh, and and the mother is tucking her hair into her into her swimming cap, and and she just begins swimming, a little breaststroke across the pool, and as the camera pans out as she's swimming, uh, we just see his floating corpse, or what looks to be a corpse, <laughs> face down in the pool for Lord knows how long. How he's pull- pulling this stunt off is a mystery, uh, and as she's swimming, she sort of pauses a little bit to look and then continues swimming you know touches the end of the pool comes back sort of has to swim around him because his bobbing body is sort of approaching her her swim lane and uh and she just you know continues on without a care in the world and the final shot is heartbreaking uh which is the, again the underwater camera just looking at Harold's you know body and his Face, his head coming down and looking at her passing by and not paying any attention to him at all. And it's just, you know, he's all, all of these things are such a cry for help. And she just she won't give him the time of day. <laughs> yeah. If there is a scene that will always make Mario laugh, it is the mom swimming around her son's fake suicide because it annoys her. But my well, here's my question to you as a as a, as a film buff: Is the scene better comedically seeing him first, or should the scene have opened with her just going into the pool swimming and then panning back? And the first time we see Harold in that pool is in that like wide shot of her swimming. I don't know if if introducing the um his him you know face down in the pool before her going in i, I don't know i i they both work comedically because it's so brilliant but uh I, it's 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 if i were in the editing you know room uh i i would have liked to have seen how it would have played if the first time you see that body is as she swims past it these are the important the kind of important discussions that comedians have <laughs> is it more important to see harold's dead body first or second but yeah, but I do agree with you. If she had just entered the pool and she just starts swimming and she just kind of slowly goes around his floating corpse, that might have been funnier. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? It's, you know, it's, you got to just sort of trust that these guys knew what they were. They got everything so right. You have to figure that they got this one right, too. <laughs> they have little test audiences. They fill out the form. Do you want more Harold <laughs> yes. Corpse or less Harold Corpse? Oh, my Lord, I, you bring up such a great point. What if I mean, if we lived in the world of focus groups in the early 70s? And I don't know if we did because the 70s movies were so much more adventurous. But my Lord, you know, and this film, I think, only cost one point two million dollars. So you can take chances. But how would this film have done in front of a focus group? <laughs> I would just love to see my grandparents walking into this movie, <laughs> not, having no idea what it was and seeing these three suicides right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway yeah this is the then we get the scene here where the the psychologist gets harold to admit he's done this 15 times and oh it wasn't for my mother's benefit i wouldn't say which is great and the mom says all right that's enough harold it's time for you to get married and this will lead to one of the fantastic subplots in this movie as suitors will start visiting harold trying to get his hand in marriage and it will not end well because he will fake kill himself in front of every one of them <laughs> yes. Oh, and it's yeah, it's it, and just it, this this uh, it just it just keeps escalating with each with each uh, with each date. Yeah, Harold has some wonderful makeup effects. Let's just say that he's very very good at what he does. <laughs> yes. Well, that was one of the things my daughter and I have, would have to pause on after each one of these suicide attempts. Wait a minute, how could he have done that? 
was just like, well, kid, it's kind of a stylized comedy. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> jibe with reality. It's the important discussions you have with your young teen daughter. How do how did he pull off this fake suicide to fool his parents? <laughs> exactly. It's like what am, what am I in for, and how am I going to explain this to my wife? <laughs> so okay, so here we go. We're going to introduce Maud back to the storyline. So Harold's got his own problems at home, and now he goes to a second funeral where he just drives up to random funerals, and he meets Maud. And as often happens, she offers him licorice. So I should point out this is the classic case of the stranger offering the younger person candy, but it actually works out. <laughs> yes, exactly. This might have been the inspiration for so many predators, and we just don't know. Damn it. you, Maud. <laughs> okay, so explain Maud. This is where we get a little backstory on who Maud is. She tells Harold why she goes to funerals and who she is. She is just uh, just a vivacious uh, chatterbox, uh, just just full of life, just so intrigued by everything uh, around her, and you can just tell right from the beginning. It's just he's she's intrigued by him she's seen him before because she is a a um you know like sort of a a serial funeral attender uh herself and so she she recognizes him from other funerals so in the middle of the eulogy you just hear psst, psst. she's like calling out to him and just trying to start a conversation and she just starts going on about like you know you know, did you know the deceased? Oh, I didn't. I hear he was 80 years old. A good time to move on, don't you think? 75 is too early, but 80, you're just marking time. She's just, you know, just rambling, just talking, but just, she just wants to know who he is. She wants to know who the person who just passed away is. She just wants to know everything and everybody and learn what their stories are, uh, not to judge them, but to celebrate them. And it's just this, um, there's just, you can just see the exuberance and, and life in her and, and here she is she's 79 years old and and is just so much full uh you know so much more full of energy than harold has ever been yeah and there's a couple really interesting things about here you learn right away the first is that she doesn't wear black she doesn't like the idea of black at funerals because it's too sad and she likes the whole concept of funerals because it's rebirth re you know uh, re uh what's a good word here uh rebirth reborn renew yeah but she finds the whole idea of funerals intoxicating because someone dies but someone new is being born so the whole thing of like and she's like you transform into something after you die so she doesn't find this whole process sad and that's what harold i think initially finds intriguing yes definitely she sees she comes to funerals because she's sort of celebrating the end of a life whereas you know harold is going to these things because he's just he he just loves seeing what the impact of death uh, can bring you know here are all of these people going to someone's funeral someone who died to respect them and here he is pretending to die and he can't even get a shrug out of his mm -hmm. mom yeah no very true although and there's a there's a very important line here too and this becomes important later in the movie we're going to kind of spoil the ending but i don't think it's that big a deal because it's important to the story where she says right here i turn 80 next week 80 is a good time to go out don't you think she already knows she's going to kill herself in a week. 
Yeah, and and it's so funny when you watch this film for the second time, it's like The Sixth Sense where, you know, there's all of these clues that, you know, Bruce Willis is dead. That's another spoiler, but if people don't know that already, that's on you. Um, but it's you watch it a second time, you're like, how did I miss this the first time I saw it? And with Harold and Maude, she drops two or three really obvious clues that she is about to off herself and you, you don't pick up on it the first time you see it. Yeah, although I do have to reiterate, yes, it's a suicide movie. Yes, she's going to kill herself, but it's not in a sad way. Like, to Maude, the end of a life is a celebration. So she's not sad that she's going to die. This is just a natural state of when she has chosen to go out, and it almost makes her happier in a way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. As she says, you know, at the at the at the funeral, something about like, you know, once you're 80, you're just marking time. You're you're less yourself. You're you know, it's just it, it, it's you know, get out, you know, you know, get get out while you still have your faculties about yeah, you. Absolutely. And there's it's interesting because like that line right there, she's already said she's going to kill herself. There's a couple really interesting reveals that make this movie so much deeper than you realize it is. And that's one of them. The other one comes later and it's so brief that a lot of people, I don't think remember it or even caught it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, are you talking about when she actually says, um, you know, well, it'll, you know, I'll be 80 next week. And then later she says like, well, you know, it'll be all over by Saturday. Is I'm not talking line? about that. I'm talking specifically. There's a scene later in the movie. They're holding hands on the beach. And he looks down and he sees her wrist. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. That's a really deep reveal that really changes this movie a little bit. Oh, it, it absolutely, it absolutely does. And, and it also, that reveal um, brings up uh, an earlier conversation she has with Harold when she's talking about uh, her husband and, and you know what you know I, I guess we will get to the scene later but it's a it's a tattoo from the auschwitz uh concentration camp that harold sees yes. on on ruth's arm and and you start to put the pieces together that when she came to america she had gotten out of a camp and she had lost her husband in the camp and uh and it's just you you just realize my lord here is someone who's been through one of the greatest atrocities in the, the history of man, you know, humankind. And uh, and yet here she is able to still celebrate mm -hmm. life. Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. And that's a lot of people don't remember that about this movie or maybe never caught it because they don't harp on it in the movie at all. It goes so quick at all. that Maude is a concentration camp survivor. And that is why she attaches so much value to life now. Yes. Yeah, it really changes her character when you realize that. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really it's 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 such a it's it's just such a powerful scene and it really um yeah, it it it, it just really just changes uh the entire perspective you you have on her character and yeah. and the film itself. Maude does have one fun quirk and I, I always forgot about this one until I watched the movie again is that she doesn't believe that you should be attached to things or people or objects. She thinks everything is temporary and is just meant to be appreciated in the moment and then it moves on. And because of that rationale, she doesn't own a car, she just steals cars. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Whichever one happens to catch her eye. Yeah, whichever <laughs> car she likes at that moment. She'll show up at a funeral. She likes a car. She'll take it and drive away and then go to the next funeral, leave the car there, grab a new one. And she doesn't see anything wrong with this because people get attached to things too much. So it's just one of her little quirks. And Harold was like, really? And this will become important later when she steals his car. <laughs> that's, that's right. Which, you know, why would she think in a million years that a hearse would actually belong to one of the attendees of a funeral? Yes, but Ruth is just not malicious at all. Just this absolute free spirit, and we'll see more of her in a second. But first, let's go back to Harold and his mom. And here's my, my wife's personal favorite scene in this movie. I like the drowning scene. She likes this scene where the mom has decided Harold is going to join a dating service. That he, he is going to be married, that he is, leads a aimless life, he needs to grow up, he needs to find a woman. So she takes a dating, she built, uh, registers him for a dating service, and she fills out his dating profile for him. Oh, it's, such, it's such a brilliant scene that just says so much about both characters, because she's filling out the form, uh, it, and, and she's asking him the questions, like, you know, do you... Sometimes have headaches after a bad day. Oh, yes, sure, you do. Um, but then as she's filling out the form, she's really just answering the questions herself uh, or for herself. Like, do you find the idea of wife swapping distasteful? Oh, I even find the question distasteful. Yes. So Harold's sitting in the foreground, just looking all morose in a chair as his mom is filling out a dating profile, answering as if she's the one, like, do you think women's lib has gone too far? I most certainly do. <laughs> I just love it. She's so great, the mom. And just so and just so controlling of him to the point where she's like, yeah, she is. Ah, it's just it's just such a great bit of comedy. Do you have a trouble? Have a hard time with this? Hmm. Let's just say unknown. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. And so in the foreground, Harold is cleaning a gun because he's going to shoot himself in the head because he hates this. <laughs> yeah, she's filling out the form for him with her own answers, and he's sitting there loading this gun at one point, even sort of points it at her before finally turning it to his own forehead. Yes. Harold shoots himself in the head, falls backwards. You just see him in the chair on his back with his feet up, and his mom doesn't even bat an eye, doesn't even throw her off. She's just like, Harold, please. <laughs> she just keeps going. Oh, so good. <laughs> that is a scene again i don't care how old this movie is that is timeless comedy that will make you laugh every time it's just so and so incredibly well done yeah okay so harold at a low perhaps a low point in his life now goes to another funeral meets maude again this is where she steals his car and uh she drives him home and uh or she go drives back to her place that's it they go to her place for the first time they talk about her philosophy this is where she says she doesn't wear black she only wears yellow she celebrates life she's not really into death yeah and i think she um i believe this is where they uh yeah he she drives she, yeah she's in the hearse and she's driving and she's driving him and and asks if she can drive him home and and he says well this is my car and she's like okay well then you shall take me home and uh and then he finally uh you know he he drives her home and 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 discovers her 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 home which is actually it's a train car <laughs> Maud lives in a train although you could make the parallel even that maybe that's kind of a uh 
what's the right word uh, where you're trying to rid yourself of demons? I mean, if they took the trains to the prison camps, maybe she's trying to. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that until right now. Maybe that's why she chooses to live in a train. It's kind of a... some sort of like cognitive yes. therapy of just, you know, yeah, it's possible. Yeah. But we learn, we get a lot of good quotes here from Maude at her house where she says, you know, don't get too attached to cars. Don't get too attached to things. I drive a new car every day because I like a new experience. Right. And, and, and just letting the people know whose cars were stolen here today, gone tomorrow. Just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Although we learned some things about her. She used to be an activist. She used to liberate animals from pet stores. Although she learned it was eventually it was too aggressive. She didn't like doing that anymore. But she has a great quote here that I love this. She says, zoos are full. Prisons are full. How the world dearly loves a cage. Yes. And it's interesting because the, 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 the camera angle, as she says that, isn't on her and isn't on Maud. And this is a film that's just full of close-ups. It's just always really tight in on the people who are speaking. And when she says that line, it's it's like a like an establishing shot of, of her home, which I, I, I suppose it, it's a home. It's inside. It's a cage. It's just an interesting choice of, of camera angle that I, I never really fully um wrapped my brain around because is 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 this is this supposed to be a cage to to Maud because Maud to me seems like the, no cage can contain Maud but it's it's just it's I don't know uh, do you have any thoughts on that do, do you remember do you know the camera angle I'm talking about I know yeah it's very specific but I mean logistically they just probably had a very small area to work with but I do agree with that yeah it's I mean the movie she, she's talking about life in general but everything she says is about Harold He's in a cage. He feels trapped. He's in a world he doesn't really belong in. And again, that's why this movie is so powerful to younger people just finding their place in the world, because everything Maude says is such fantastic advice. It's so amazing. And she's like, yeah, she's just a bird. She's uncageable. Yes, very much. And then Harold has to leave. He, he likes Maude. He finds her intriguing, but she's a little much at first. He excuses himself, and she's like, well, please come back and visit again. And you get the sense she doesn't have many visitors. She's kind of lonely, too. And I believe this is where uh, Harold goes to his therapist. Their therapist is like, do you have any friends, Harold? And Harold's like, well, <laughs> one, maybe. So we see Harold actually might be making a connection with someone as weird as, as this connection might be. Yes. And I think he might even fall asleep toward the end of that therapy session. Yes, it's, it's a, there's a fun little visual joke because it's the, he's on the therapist couch with the little head at the end, the pillow at the end where you put your head. But he's laying on it backwards, so his feet are on the pillow, and he has his arms across his chest. He's pretending it's like a coffin. He's got his arms over, folded <laughs> across his chest. And we should also make a comment that every time he sees his therapist, it's usually they're a mirror image of each other. They wear the same exact suits, handkerchief tie it's just a very strange visual every time we see them together and it's always shot from one or the other point of view you never see both in the same shot if i recall i think i think you might be right yeah okay so harold's starting to make a friend and now we're going to go back home and now he starts meeting his parade of suitors the girlfriends his mother has brought to the house to try to hook him up with and they will get progressively more horrible let's talk about candy the sorority girl we, we, we have to start with the, just the names. So uh, as we bring up each of these dates, we have to bring up their names. This one is Candy Gulf. And uh, yeah, she's a she's a poli sci major with a with a minor in home ec, I believe, in case things don't work out. Let me let me point out her name is Candy. This is the second time Harold has already been offered candy in this movie. 
yeah. Carry on. Never mind. Just wanted to say that. Yeah. But uh, so she's just uh, she's you know the mom is is uh, is is sort of you know uh, just welcoming her into into the home and and they're they're standing by a a, a window that sort of overlooks uh one of the, the the gardens i suppose in the in the estate and uh and they're just you know she's just trying to get to know candy and we see she's candy's a fairly uh um vacuous uh person seems sweet but uh, i and i think she actually also says that she wasn't going to join the uh the dating service that she sort of lost a bet with her sorority sisters. And, you know, she drew the short straw and ended up having to be uh, in this computer dating service. And then of course um, steps back from that, just like, Oh, but you know, I'm not judging. I'm not saying computer dating services are bad. Yeah. It's really funny that she, she did this on a bet and she lost the bet. She had to do the dating service, but that's what the mom was asking. The mom was basically asking if she was a slut. Like, do you do this all the time? So, yeah, poor Candy is in there talking to the mom, and Harold's walking around outside in this big white robe for some reason. He waves to Candy through the window. <laughs> you know, friendly, just a nice friendly yes. wave. And as Candy and the mom are talking, Harold, just in the background, I love the genius, the way this scene is shot, where you only see him in the background behind the mom. It's in Candy's vision, so she sees him. He goes up on a picnic table, covers himself with gasoline, and sets himself on fire. Just he erupts in a ball of flame and candy screams. And what's so what's so awesome is just before he lights that match, uh, the mom sort of gives candy a warning that, you know, Harold is a bit of an eccentric. And Candy tells this story about her brother, who's also a real cut up and how they once had a TV, an old TV with no parts inside and how the brother, you know, stuck his head underneath and, and pretended to be in the screen giving the evening news report. And like that was her idea of eccentric. And then just as she's telling that story, Harold lights himself ablaze. <laughs> now, there's a deleted scene I know somewhere where Harold has a dummy, a life size dummy that looks like him. And that's how he fake pulls off these suicides i read that somewhere but so people may not be aware of how harold's doing this but yeah he lets his lights his dummy on fire and then shows up and announces himself and wants to shake hands but candy is so horrified she screams and runs out of the room and this is where we get my personal favorite visual from this movie where the mom is just so dismayed that harold has chased off his first girlfriend and harold just kind of turns and looks at the camera and smiles and there's this great shot of the mom looking up at him, looking all disgusted with him. It's a wonderful picture. I'm going to use it as the image. If you open these podcasts, there's usually a picture attached to it. That's the picture I'll use for sure. Oh, it's uh, it's so great. And I think that's one of the uh, I think that might be one of one of uh, his ad libs, uh, Bud Quartz. But uh, what's so brilliant about it is that he kind of gives the camera this sly smile and then he turns back and catches the cold stare of his mom and he just shuts down that sly <laughs> smile is gone <laughs> oh do take this seriously harold <laughs> yeah. okay so let's go back to maude harold is going to go back to maude's house because it's the first friend he's ever had this old quirky 79 year old woman and he sees her nude modeling that's one thing she does for fun <laughs> which already i know you we don't necessarily see a whole lot of ruth gordon so don't worry but it's implied and we meet, we see her house for the first time, and she shows off all her stuff here. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's a crazy, uh, just arrangement of just 
of, of just stuff and how she's fitting this into a train car. I mean, there's a baby grand piano in there, but um, but it's also her paintings. We learn that she's an artist herself. She has one painting that she shows him that's called something like a a rainbow with an egg underneath an elephant or something, something like that. And also what I loved um, and, and was jealous of when I first saw this film, I, I would love to have had something like this, was a, what she calls her odorifics, where she captures smells into these like containers that she sort of punches into this machine that grinds out uh, and pulls these these different odors and 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 you put this uh, sort of mask over your 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 nose and mouth to to breathe them in and and, and what she shares with him is it, she calls it snowfall on 42nd street and she and she starts you know grinding the machine and Harold's sitting there just taking in the smells and it changes from like the smell of being on a subway to the smell of perfume and cigarettes and, and, and finally the fresh smell of, of, of snow. And it's just, as he's breathing it in, you could just see him just, just find this piece that we have yet to see uh, Harold experience in the, the, the first hour of this film. Yeah. He's just, He's just sort of smitten with her. And again, it's not romantic. This isn't really a romantic movie. It's love in a different sense. He's just so smitten with Maude because she's just the opposite of his mother. She's just so vibrant and fun and full of life and non-judgmental. She just accepts everything and loves everything. And he's never met somebody like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The reins are, are completely off. It's just he has the freedom to just, you know, to 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 explore, to just be himself. And then she actually brings him over to some sort of abstract wooden sculpture because you know, she explains that she's a very tactile person. And she um, and she just brings him over to it and she's just like, touch it, stroke it, palm it, caress it. And it's very sexual the way she's presenting this wooden sculpture to him. But it's just uh, just it, it's just this, uh, you know, she's just encouraging him to just step out of himself and explore and explore life, explore everything. And it's just uh, it's it's such a wonderful uh, scene where we really see Harold being liberated. Yeah, we're going to get a long stretch of movie here where Harold is going to kind of be reborn a little bit. And it all starts with Maude. And she's got so many great quotes here, like, uh, try something new each day. Life doesn't last forever. Greet the dawn with a breath of fire just to announce to the world that you're there. And then, uh, but again, she's dropping hints that she's going to be killing herself in a week. She's like, you know, I turn 80 on Saturday. It's all going to be over after Saturday. So enjoy life. Like she's dropping hints and he doesn't catch that yet. Yeah, she's like, it's all going to be over after Saturday. Tell me about yourself. (laughs) She just launches right in and you just, yeah, it it, it goes right past you. But it it is. It's just it's it's so full of of these things that like I don't know in any other movie or maybe any other actress, it would just feel like, you know, who is this person spouting out these greeting card, you know, uh, or bumper sticker sayings. But they never come across as that. They just feel so genuine and so lived in uh, that everything that everything that she says is just its own little gospel. Yeah, it's one of those things you almost get the sense that Ruth Gordon isn't really acting like that's just Ruth Gordon. That's that's what's so interesting watching her. Right. <laughs> it's like the, the same woman from My Bodyguard. And, and of course, Rosemary. This was was this the first film she made after Rosemary's Baby? I was wondering that. It's got to be close. I, I will I will sum that up for people. In Rosemary's Baby, she plays a horrible, 
devil-worshipping murderer. She's evil. And in this, she's quirky, lovable Maude. It's quite a whiplash. But yeah, she's. I think this is the first movie after she won an Oscar for Rosemary's Baby. I think so. I think so. But she's quite, she's, she's quite something else, uh, Ruth Gordon, because she was also a writer. And I think uh, the film Adam's Rib, the uh, Spencer Tracy... Uh, um, I think it was Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn movie. Uh, she was one of the co-writers of that and was Oscar nominated for it. And it's it's just she was really she just had so many just so many talents. And 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 I know you mentioned that there's some people that can't stand her. Uh, I, I don't want to meet those people. I will tell you, my kids cannot handle her. No, <laughs> I know it's terrible. Well, your kids don't like the Brady Bunch either, so you know we we, we got to talk about some of your parenting skills. Here. I know it's you know I I've I blame myself somewhere along the line we went wrong. But yeah, Ruth Gordon is a she was actually had a yeah I, I just want to touch on that for a second. I was reading up on her. She had a very very prominent career long before she was known as an actor. She was like one of the first big female writers of movies and stage and stuff. She was re- she was yeah. really prominent, and then like later in life she became an actor. So that's what people know. But that was like a a career renaissance after her career was basically over. She'd already done a ton of stuff. And that was one low ceiling back in like the forties. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so really, she really must have had the talent to uh, to break through like that, or probably the charm too. Because I would imagine even as like a twenty five to thirty year old, she was probably charming as hell then too. Well, yeah, she's so tiny and so vivacious. She's gonna win you over. She's just a force of nature, as we see in this movie. Okay, so speaking of nature, we're gonna go through a stretch of movie. I'm gonna kind of skip through some of this just because I want to get to the end. Yeah, but. There's a whole montage of Harold and Maude hanging out. They go to, like, watch buildings be destroyed. And it's really interesting to see their different perspective of life. Harold likes the destruction. Maude likes, well, they're going to put a new building there. And it's just you just see their whole perspective. They're very similar in a way that they're obsessed with death, but like Stephen said, for very different reasons. And this is very prominent when they go to a uh, garden and they see flowers. Oh, well, this is I, I had mentioned, you know, my film uh class that there's two scenes i i show and one is the opening and and then there's and then there's this scene where where they're walking and they uh they pass by some flowers and and she just talks about how she loves to watch things grow and they grow and they bloom and they fade and they die and change into something else and 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 she always says that uh, that she wanted to be a, a a sunflower. That was like the 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 flower she uh, associated herself with. And she asked what flower he did, and he and he points to just this big group of uh, of dandelions and just says, I I, I guess those. And she asks why, and she and he says because they're they're all alike, and you can kind of get lost in them. And uh, and she stops him, and she's like, they're. No, they're they're not alike at all. You know, some are smaller, some are fatter, some grow to the left, the right, you know, and uh, some have lost their petals. And she says that, you know, like all of those dandelions, there are all kinds of obser- observable differences. And 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 she says that that's sort of what the problem with the world today is, is that people allow themselves to be this cluster of dandelions when they really are each these beautiful individuals. And and then there is this brilliant, brilliant, brilliant cut that takes my breath away every time I see it. Um, We cut from that group of dandelions that he sees as all being alike, but she sees as individuals uh, to 
um, we're at a cemetery and we see all of these headstones, all of these white headstones that themselves, you could say, all look alike. And maybe that's what Harold likes about death is that you die, you get a headstone and then you're like everybody else and get lost. But to her, every one of those headstones is its own story and its own individual, its own life. And we pull back and we pull back and we pull back. There's thousands of these headstones. And, and meanwhile, Cat Stevens, Where Do the Children Play, is playing. And it's just one of these scenes where it just captures the theme of this movie so well that, you know, one person can look at a, you know, a group of flowers or headstones and just see um, just individual things getting lost in a crowd. And someone else can just say, wow, I'm marveling over all of these different lives that are all here grouped together, but all individual. And that is really, to me, just it just sums up what is so beautiful about this movie. Yeah, that's so well said. I'm glad you talked about that visual, this, the headstones. That's so cool, and it's so artsy and cinematic, and just it's a very deep shot for what's been a very silly movie up to this point. And I'm going to repeat this quote. You kind of paraphrase it, but I want to say it exactly, just in case. Again, because this movie legitimately changed my life. But I saw it much later. I saw it in my late 20s. Like, if you're a teenager and you're going through that phase in your life when you're a little different than everyone else and it really bothers you, there's a quote here. I'm going to read you a word-for-word quote from Maude that will, no, not kidding, this will change your life. This is the kind of stuff you need to hear when you're young. Where she holds up a flower and it's got some quirks with it. It's like one of the petals is missing. It's kind of bent. And she holds it up and she says, I feel like much of the world's sorrow comes from people who were like this, but allow themselves to be treated like that. And she points to the, the field of flowers that are all exactly the same. And that's, it's so interesting the way she phrased that. So much sorrow and sadness in the world is when people are different, but they allow themselves to be treated like everyone else in the world. And that's so, such a powerful statement, I feel. Oh, it's 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 really is. It's it's just it's it's just a, it's just such an amazing uh, message to get across. You know, the, the 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 things that make you different are the things that make you powerful. And uh, and it's just uh, it's just so beautifully communicated in in her dialogue and then in um, Hal Ashby's visuals. Yeah. Although, you know what it reminds me of just off the top of my head? I didn't write this in my notes. The whole, you know, the the discrepancies and the flaws. Those are the good things about the world. Those are what make it interesting. That's so similar to do you remember Goodwill Hunting with Robin Williams. When he's talking about how his wife used to fart in bed and Matt Damon's laughing and Robin Williams is like, why are you laughing? That's the good stuff. That's the interesting thing about people. They're little flaws. It's not the, the sameness. It's the differences that make us all special. Yes. Yeah, that's that's right on. Wow, this is going to be the deepest staff picks episode we've ever done. So get ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go, let's go back to Maud's house. We're going to have the piano scene here. And this is where we learn Maud's entire backstory with a lot of the stuff about Vienna. You probably remember this a little better than I do. Tell us about Maud's political history and her life history. What, you know, what I remember you know, most was she would, she would talk about the protest. She had that umbrella, uh, I remember, on her, on her wall that she would – yeah, she was very, very uh, active – in in protests and yeah this this is a, this is a, a scene that I'm not as familiar not as familiar with as other scenes or, or or don't remember as much as other scenes so um okay here let me let me yeah. try to fill it in so the short version is Maud is from Austria she came to America a while back and when she first came here she used to pick it and go to rallies political stuff very 
very much an activist. She'd go to rallies, she'd get beat up and dragged away by the cops, and she loved it. She loved it, just feeling like she was part of life. And she explains, I don't believe in borders, I don't believe in nations, I don't believe in patriotism, but I believe in life and human rights and freedom. And so we learn, she, at one point she was married to a soldier, or almost married to a soldier. She used to be rich, she used to know kings, and she had a very colorful life. And she just said, but that was all before, dot, dot, dot. That was all before. That's when she talks about, yeah, yeah, you know, how she, you know, misses the kings and the palaces, you know, in, in Vienna. I think she, uh, uh, she would talk about garden parties and how she did love that, that lifestyle. And yeah, she would, and then she mentioned, you know, like joking that she would marry a soldier one day. And, and then, yeah, she said, Fred, uh, Frederick uh, would chide me about it. And then she would talk about like, you know, he was a doctor and, and, uh, uh, and how he was always so serious. And then she just falls silent and, and you see the tears in her eyes. Uh, and that was all before. And, and, and she is definitely lost in this, this moment of, of her past. And that's, you know, a Harold kind of brings her out of it by, by asking about, you know, the protests and the, and, and the umbrella and, and she, and she just sort of, kind of snaps out of it and and that's when she brings him over to the piano yeah although she does say one more phrase here that i love she says he's like why don't you protest anymore why do you just you know flit around and celebrate life the way you do and she says because i don't fight anymore i embrace oh that's yes it's so cool and then she says yeah she immediately goes over to the piano she's like want to play a song and he's like i don't play songs she's like everybody plays songs and she sits down and she sings what will be the anthem of this movie it's a real cat stevens song but we get her version here the ruth gordon or ruth gordon version uh if you want to sing out sing out and it's kind of a grating song when she sings it but it's a cute song and we'll hear it later many times well, she couldn't be worse. Uh, the singing is terrible, and, and that, to her, is exactly the point. It really doesn't matter how badly I'm singing. Listen to what I'm singing about. It's just that if you want to be you, be you. If you want to sing out, sing out. There's a million things to, you know, to do. You know who you are. It's just this, it's this Cat Stevens song that was written for the film, and uh, we'll hear him sing it later. But right now, she's sitting there at a piano, and we're like, well, she can't sing, but at least she can play piano until she gets up and starts dancing, and the piano is still playing. It's a player piano, so she doesn't really play the instrument. She can't really sing, but she's totally in the moment and enjoying the song. Yeah, although the big takeaway from this scene is the song, her history in Austria prior to World War II in the concentration camps, and the other thing is that Harold doesn't play any instruments, and she's shocked. He's like, I don't do anything. She's like, everybody's got to play something. And she opens a cabinet and she's got like every instrument in there, which she's presumably stolen at some point. But she right. chooses the banjo. That will be Harold's quirky instrument. And he's like, I don't know how to play. She's like, figure it out. That's what life is about. Make, you know, take chances. So she gives him a banjo. And this will be Harold's little symbol the rest of the movie, this banjo that he's now learning to play. Yes. Yeah, in the very next scene, we see him him practicing it just uh, as his mom uh, uh, calls him away from practicing the piano to show him the the beautiful uh, Jaguar she just bought him. <laughs> yeah. His mom has thrown away his hearse because she doesn't like it, the eyesore it takes up in front of her mansion. She buys him a new Jaguar, and Harold's first move is to instantly get out a blowtorch, and he's going to convert the Jaguar into a Jaguar hearse. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't, now, I don't know where Harold learns these car mechanic skills. Personally, I don't think he'd be able to do that. But we'll go with the movie that he is able to convert it to this awesome Jaguar hearse we'll see later in the movie. And it is amazing. And uh, from what I understand is is there was only one Jaguar hearse uh, that was made for the film. Uh, and, you know, we can talk about what happens to that hearse later. But uh, it's, a, it's a shame that that, that that thing, that Jaguar hearse, belongs in a museum somewhere. Yes. <laughs> if only we had Indiana Jones to rescue that thing and put it in a museum. <laughs> yes. Okay, so there's a long stretch of the movie here where they go to rescue a tree. And I'm going to skip over this mostly because it's not as important as the stuff that comes after it. Except for the fact that Tom Skerritt plays the cop. I didn't, I've seen this film 20 times, and it wasn't until I did a little research on it last week where I saw that it was Tom Skerritt you know, from Alien and Picket Fences, and it was just, it was just, uh, I had no idea it was him. Tom Skerritt under a pseudonym. Did you see that? He's not billed as himself. It's like M. Borman. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, that's probably why it got past me all yeah, these so, years. Yeah, so, okay, the short version is Maud sees a tree. They're downtown in San Francisco somewhere. She sees a tree, and she's like, this tree shouldn't be here. It should be in a forest. It's suffocating from the smog, and she's very sensitive to plants and nature. So she and Harold liberate the tree, steal a car, steal the tree, steal some tools, and go and plant it in the forest so it can be with its friends where it deserves to be. And there's a whole running gag with this cop trying to pull her over, this uh, uh, Tom Skerritt, and he can't because when she pulls her over, she just steals his motorcycle. <laughs> but it's just <laughs> mods, you know, I don't believe in cars, I don't believe in licenses, I don't believe in paying tolls. And she just says, you know, nature, nature is what it's all about, the earth is my body, and that's the whole long stretch where they replant this tree out in the forest. Yes. All right. So here we go. We're going to learn about Harold's first suicide attempt and why he does this. This is the hookah scene. And this is a very deep scene. I always forget this scene is in here. Whew, it's a really, really uh, a powerful one. It's uh, and a really great monologue, too, and, and so well delivered by Bud Court. I think a lot of people just kind of say, well, Bud Court, he's a, you know, kind of a one note, you know, actor. And but this is a really uh, emotional scene and it's and it's just heart-wrenching and so much of it is 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 his performance he he's talking about when he was away at boarding school and no no shocker that you know that he would be sent away to boarding school by his by his mother um but uh i i believe if i remember he he was uh sort of uh was in a, a chem, you know a chemical lab uh after school or after class and he started you know messing around with some of the chemicals and there's this um horrible explosion uh you know blows a hole through the floor and and he he sort of realizes well this is going to get me kicked out of school so he just leaves <laughs> and uh and he sneaks back home and and again no surprise at all the mom is in the middle of you know throwing one of her her many parties and so he comes in and he guess he's he just sort of sneaks off to his room uh but right on the heels of him coming home and his mom not seeing him because she's throwing her party the door there's a knock on the door and the, and the police are there and the police have presumed that Harold was part of this explosion that part is correct but they had thought that uh, or assumed that he had been blown to bits and Harold is watching his mom learn the news about his death and she sort of swoons, you know, puts a hand to, you know, her head and legitimately, you know, passes out from shock and grief. And th that is the reaction 
that I think with all of these fake suicides, he's been trying to recreate just to have that connection with his mom. And he starts as he finishes this story, he sort of puts his head down and it looks like he's laughing at just the absurdity of the story. But then he pulls his head back up and you see that he is just sobbing uncontrollably. And he says that it was at that moment that he realized uh, he enjoys being dead. Yeah, it's a very deep scene and very well acted and very serious. Like you get the sense that, you know, Harold's joking about all this stuff, but this scene is deadly serious. Like I enjoy being dead because people care about me if I'm dead. And Maude understands this and she consoles him and Harold's crying. And Maude has another wonderful quote that I have to say this word for word, just because it's, it's so interesting. This applies to so many people out in the world. People I know, like people I don't know where Maude says, a lot of people enjoy being dead, but they're not dead, really. They're just backing away from life. Wow. It really is. It's it's just, uh, she always just has just the absolute, um, just perfect things to say. And then it just leads to this pep talk of her just saying, you know, like a literal cheer that she gives, you know, the give me an L, give me an I, give me an F, give me an E or a V, give me an E, you live. Um, otherwise, you got nothing to talk about in the locker room. And it's just this it's just, again, delivered by anyone else. You might roll your eyes, but in the moment and coming from from the character of Maud, it's just it's everything uh, it's just everything he needed to hear. Yeah, no, there's so many good little bits of advice here that are really applicable to people in the real world. So that's why I say people should watch this movie where Maud says, aim above morality. If you, if you apply that to life, you're bound to live it fully. I like that yeah. one. Vice, virtue, it's best not to be too moral. You miss out on too much life. And then here's the one that's really especially important. Reach out, take a chance, get hurt even, but play as well as you can. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 just so it's so great. It's really words uh, all of us should be living by. Yeah. And then Harold just looks up at Maude, this weird 80 year old woman with this odd past. And he realizes he's kind of in love with her at this point. He's like, he didn't expect this. And he just he can't phrase it correctly. But he's like, I like you, Maude. And she says, I like you, Harold. And they dance together. And it's again, this is where it's getting into the romance where it's like what it honestly is the greatest love story of all time. Mary was correct in something about Mary. It's very pure. I, I think so, too, because you just sort of strip away all of the, you know, the, the physical attraction that just, you know, let's face it, you know, the, the physical attraction tends to really complicate matters. It makes us like people that we probably shouldn't. And it, and it keeps us away from people that we should be around. And, uh, and this just, it's, it's just looking at two souls that have found each other and, and have fallen in love with each other and had connect so well. And that, it's just, it's, it's just so damn beautiful. Yeah. And speaking of beautiful, let's go to date number two. With or sorry, dating service girl number two would be more applicable. Where we meet the wonderful Edith Fern. Edith Fern, who um is a file clerk for like some um feed and grain industry, and <laughs> she's just really, really um just loves talking about that with uh, with Harold's mom. Uh, I think she's uh, she says she's in in charge of all the invoices for the Southwest. She says, we supply most of the egg farmers in Patalonia, so you can imagine. 
<laughs> you can, yeah. She and Harold are going to hit it off instantly. Instant connection. <laughs> yeah. And her introduction to Harold is just as he's finishing up on his uh, on his Jaguar hearse. In fact, I think that's where we first see what he was doing with that blowtorch was creating this hearse. So <laughs> the mother discovers it along with Edith Fern. So this chatty young file clerk comes in for her date with Harold. And again, Harold has already established a pattern. When a date shows up, he's going to horribly injure or kill himself just to freak her out and make her leave. And this is, I know a lot of people, this is their favorite Harold fake suicide attempt. Although this really isn't a suicide. This is just shock value. Where in the middle of conversation with Edith Fern, he pulls out a meat cleaver and chops off his hand right in front of her. <laughs> And he wastes no time in doing it. <laughs> he sits down. I think he maybe offers her a cigarette or, or something. She says no. And then he just proceeds to chop yes, off. And it's so violent. The axe comes down and he hits it as hard. Or the, the hatchet comes out. He hits it as hard as he can. And the, the look on her face, her eyes get real big. <laughs> and the mom just lowers her hand, head to her hand. She's like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> Now, I got to give a little trivia, a little Mario trivia here. The actress who plays Edith Fern, her name is Sherry Summers. And I mention her because she's also in my, what is another one of my favorite movies of all time, The Bad News Bears. The Bad News Bears, she plays the wife of the evil coach, the Yankees. She plays Jill Turner. Oh, Vic Morrow's uh, wife? Yes. Oh, my God. Vic Morrow's wife. And she wears these, the tightest pair of bell-bottom hip-huggers I have ever seen on a person. And every kid I knew who grew up in the 70s remembers that shot of Jill Turner walking away in her tight pants. That's right. With with uh, the Courtship of Eddie's father, Yeah, with, uh, right? uh, with, uh, with, with uh, Brandon Cruz. Yeah, with him. Yes, yes, because yeah, he had uh, he had just you know held on to the baseball to you know piss off his uh, uh -huh. his dad and uh, and the and and yeah, and he slaps his son and everyone is just silent and then yeah she comes in and takes him home and uh, yeah yeah okay I know the so that's about. Sherry Summers and almost every kid I know who's my age had a crush on Jill Turner because of that hot pants shot because she's so hot in that movie. This is the other movie she's in. She's Edith Fern. This is five years before the Bad News Bears. That's Sherry Summers. And so that's all for years. I'm like, hey, that's Jill Turner. She was in another movie. And so she like did these two movies and then basically dropped out and stopped acting ever again. But these are the two movies. But there's more trivia is that she married the producer of this movie, Charles Mulvihill. They got married on the set, and that's why she stopped acting. So Edith Fern is very prominent in this movie, Sherry Summers, that actress. Wow, what a great bit of trivia. Yes, and I only know that because I remember the that tight pair of bell bottoms and the bad news bears. <laughs> so I wonder, like, what would be you know more offensive? You know, seeing your husband slap your son, or being on a date where someone pretends to chop off his arm. <laughs> Sherry Summers went through the ringer. Let's just leave it at that. She had a poor time dating. <laughs> What's the bigger yes. turnoff? But the Edith Fern scene is so great. And just Sherry Summers has these wonderfully huge eyes when she sees Harold cut off his hand. Just say, yeah, it's a scene you will never forget if you've seen it. Oh, it's fantastic. So the mom is kind of a last resort, decides Harold is going to be enlisted in the army. The threat is now going to be followed through. She enlists him in the army. He's going off to war. And so Harold says, please, Ma, do something. They're going to draft me. I don't want to go. And again, this is in the middle of Vietnam. You don't want to go anywhere, 1970, 71. And so there's a little slapstick scene where Maude gets him out of the army. If you want to we'll quickly go through that one. 
Yes, I think she says like, well, with your skill and my experience, I'm sure we can think of something. And what they think of is uh, Harold uh, invites uh, uh, Uncle Victor to a park and uh, they just sort of have, you know, have a little talk about, you know, what the, uh, you know, how his future could change in the in the army. And uh, at first, you know, Harold uh, uh, starts, you know, uh, part one of the uh, of the scheme, which is to just act in a in a very sort of masochistic, maniacal way, just talking about the joys of of killing uh, in the army, of of the of the, of the hand to hand combat, and and of slitting, uh, you know, your enemy's throat, <laughs> and and taking souvenirs like of your kill, like the eyes, the ears, the privates, and clearly Uncle Victor is starting to get a little disturbed by all of this. Uh, and then Harold pulls out a shrunken head, and saying, "Well, what about this? You know, can I can I do this with my kill?" And 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 just as all of you know, just as Uncle Victor is starting to get a little unsettled with his with his nephew um uh, uh maud shows up in the form of a of a protester someone that's you know looking to end the war she's you know speaking out for peace and harold just starts you know screaming at her and calling her a, a, a commie and uh and uh and and and, uh, and they have this fake argument in front of uncle victor and she takes his shrunken head and Harold starts screaming. She took my head. I'll kill her and starts chasing her. In fact, I think he like grabs her protest sign and is swinging it at her, trying to, uh, (laughs) she runs down these like stone steps, this part of the park that's by the water. And there is, there is some sort of, uh, hole, uh, in this, this one part of this, this, this platform area that she falls through and again not sure how this stunt would have been pulled off in reality but uh it would appear that he just chased her and and cornered her and 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 she fell into this hole and and to her probable death and meanwhile uh, uncle victor is chasing harold trying to stop him and his and his arm salute gear sort of malfunctions so he's he's in in salute with the sleeve of his jacket while he's chasing Harold and it's just a well clearly when all things are said and done Uncle Victor realizes Harold is unfit for the army and will not be taking him yes short version is Harold kills a war protester and is kicked out of the army for being too violent so Harold's good now. He won't have to go to Vietnam. So all is good. It's the only slapstick scene in the movie, but it, it's kind of silly, but it, it gets him out of the army. So that's good. It, yes. All right. So we're in the end part of the movie here. It's really just Harold and Maude hanging out here. And we learn that Maude doesn't pray. She communicates with life. And at one point they're at a park and Harold's like, you know, I just feel like doing a somersault right now. And she's like, then do one. He's like, but I'd look silly. She's like, so what? Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. Don't let the world judge you too much. And this is the whole thing with Harold. Like, it's fine. Make mistakes. Be silly. Live life. Just enjoy. And really, you see a whole montage of him just slowly starting to do that under her tutelage. They're dancing outdoors, doing somersaults. He's giving her a piggyback ride at one part. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's just you're just seeing him just make expressions smiling which is just you know to to it really does say what what kind of an acting job it is that you could 
be you know good hour and 15 minutes into a 90 minute movie and the only smile we've really seen out of harold was that sly one he gives after the first date and uh but the, this scene is just the you really start to see the joy come out of him and it's it's such a welcome sight to see him just making these you know, the, the mugging sounds he makes before he does the somersaults and just uh, it's just such a joy to see him coming to life. Yeah. And this again, this is all most of the romance stuff comes very, very late at the end of the movie. So like when I made the joke, it's a 20 year old bang and an 80 year old. It's really it only happens very, very at the, a very tiny bit right at the end. And we're going to lead up to that here where their love is starting to become a little more romantic. He says she's beautiful. They hold hands. She's like, oh, Harold, you make me feel like a schoolgirl. And this is the really quick shot I mentioned earlier, and a lot of people don't remember this. He looks down when they're holding hands, he sees her wrist, and he sees the Auschwitz tattoo, or some prison camp, I don't know which one specifically. And that tells you everything you need to know about Maude's backstory and why she is the way she is, that she has been through hell. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then, and it instantly draws you back to that you know that earlier that earlier scene when she's talking about you know Frederick and he was so serious and and that was all before dot 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 and and you you realize that this is this is something she's been you know carrying with her for you know twenty five years I guess you know as far as this film goes um, if I got my math correct and uh, it's just uh, it really is is such an alarming uh, sight to see and and if you were um, like my daughter who who I take the phone away from when we watch movies if if you were like looking at your other screen at the time uh, you would have missed you would have missed it because uh, they don't allude to it. They don't say anything. It's a visual that's about three or four seconds and yeah. then it's gone. Yeah. You really have to think about it. And again, that's why I say this movie's deeper than it gets credit for. It really is. The more you think about it and pay attention to what's going on, it's, there's a lot going on here. Okay. Yeah. So we're just about to Harold and Maude consummating the relationship, which you don't see, of course, but we have one last dating service date that we have to get out of the way. First, his mom has arranged a third and final date and she warns him, this is your last chance. And I'm guessing you like this one with your Shakespearean background. So I will, I will let you talk about sunshine. Sunshine. Yes, uh, the, the third date, she is an actress, or at least she likes to think so, as she says, uh, very, very full of herself, uh, very, very impressed with her own acting ability, although the, the little glimpse we have of her acting skills um, leave much to be desired. Uh, but they uh, they slip into, um, oh, 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 that's why I, I made a note about slipping. There's just one funny scene. I don't know if it's an outtake that they left in, but when, when Sunshine... <laughs> And Harold leave the room to you know head into another uh, room of the of, of the mansion. Um, she she just slips as she's walking, and it doesn't. There's no real reason for it to have happened. I think it just happened, and they all got a kick out of it, so they so they left it in. But um, but anyway, that that that's a happy little accent that always cracks me up. But uh, so they 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 retire to a a room where where Sunshine sees a, a Harry Carey blade and asks. And asks uh, Harold about it, and he and he asks her if, if if she knows sort of you know the history of Harry Carey, and and she she doesn't. So he he acts out you know the the, the whole uh, process of of taking this large bladed sword and impaling himself in it, but you know very ritualistically where he lays out a mat and he kneels before it. He he takes his tie and he slings it over his shoulder so there's an unobstructed uh, you know path from blade to his stomach, and he uh, 
and and he you know impales himself you know with it right, let and... me jump in let me jump in real quick i love the setup why i love this scene so much is that she walks in and they're talking and she sees he has a knife collection she's like what's this he's like oh it's a seppuku blade it's a hirikiri she's like what's that would you show me and he kind of looks up and you just you know where it's going like oh please show me what ritual suicide looks like so he's going to show her and that he does. And when he dies, she is so impressed. But as an actress herself, you know, uh, from the Sunshine Playhouse, she knows that, you know, that this is acting and that it must be a, a retractable blade. And so she um, so she mentions that she once played Juliet in uh, in, in a production of, of Romeo and Juliet. So she <laughs> starts acting out Juliet's final you know, suicide scene. And uh, with, you know, just the poorest delivery of, you know, what here? A cup closed in my true love's hand. And she uh, she tests the, the retractable blade, of course, as any actor, you know, would. And and uh, before driving it into herself and then she collapses very dramatically um, next to Harold and the two of them are lying there on the floor, uh, seemingly dead. And of course, that's when the mom enters the room and delivers her, Harold, that was your last date. <laughs> yeah, this is a great silly scene, the double ritual suicide, where the girl is actually into it. Whatever Harold's doing, she's into it. But it's funny because it, there's a bigger point to it. You think this is a silly little moment, but there actually is a point here that... This girl is actually maybe perfect for Harold. She's into his little theatrics. And the mom is horrified. She's like, there's no way I'm having two of these in my family. So she kicks her out. But in, on paper, this girl might have worked with Harold. But it doesn't matter because Harold's in love with Maude now. So it, it's not going to happen. It's not. Yes. It's, 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 it just wasn't meant to be. <laughs> it was your last date. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Harold is done with the dating service. He's decided he's all in on Maud. Maud is now his girl. He doesn't care anymore. And they go to the carnival. They go to this nighttime carnival. And again, this is the night before Maud's 80th birthday. She's going to kill herself tomorrow. Harold doesn't know this yet. And this is where they hold hands and they walk hand in hand and people kind of stare. And Harold gives her a note finally. And it says, Harold loves Maud. And Maud looks back at him and says, oh, that's the nicest gift I've ever received. Maud loves Harold, too. And this is why they become a romantic couple. But she does something very interesting with that note. Yeah. I think he's like, it's, it's, I, you know, people have said, oh, it's a ring or a necklace. Or I think it's like one of those like machines where you like either put in a penny and you can sort of spell something out into it or some sort of coin that's flattened but you can create a message and that's what he creates and she takes it and she holds it to her heart and then tosses it into the water they're standing by like a, a uh off the shore and she just throws it into the water and he looks at her like what the hell did you just do but before he can even express a thought or or, or utter a word she just says so i'll always know where it is i love that that's so cool <laughs> It really, it really is. It's just, just such a wonderful, wonderful moment that it just makes no sense at first. And then she has that answer and you're just like, yeah, that is, that is so Maud. That is what Maud would do. She'll never lose it. It's in the Bay of San Francisco. She knows where it is. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And this is where now we cut to fireworks, which is our 
uh, metaphor for them having sex. And, you know, blissfully, we do not see it, although I know Hal Ashby wanted to film a love scene, but the studio sh- uh, shot him down. Yes, and, and no train entering the tunnel. They, they, I'm glad they just went with fireworks. Yeah, so Harold and Maude sleep together, and we just see the aftermath the next day with them laying in bed happily. He's got his shirt off. She's, you know, topless with her blanket up to her neck, and she's sleeping. And he's, you know, in, in most movies, they'd be smoking cigarettes. No, Harold is blowing bubbles. He's blowing <laughs> bubbles. <laughs> the great image. Yeah, and again, this is the end of the movie. I always forget there's only like eight minutes left in the movie. It's very quick here. Yeah, yeah, it's a boom. Right after that, we see Harold with his mom and and he says he's he's, you know, he's getting married. In fact, uh, I think she is on the phone with her with her friend from the first scene uh, when he shows a, a picture of her. And it's just, and she looks at it and she's like, you know, is this some kind of joke, Harold? Because it's a, a picture of a sunflower. And then he he flips it. And and on the other side is a picture of of Maud and she, not be serious. Well, you know, all along, all his mom wanted was for him to settle down and get married. So Harold is technically fulfilling the bargain. He's like, I'm getting married. She's like, really? To whom? And then he shows this picture of this old, tiny, 80-year-old woman. Harold, you can't be serious. And he just leaves. He just walks out in the middle of her sentence and leaves her. And then there's this, like, great uh, grouping of, 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 of vignettes of... Uh, of Uncle Victor uh, trying to talk him out of it with a picture of of Nixon, a framed picture of Nixon right next to him. And then there's the therapist trying to talk him out of it with a framed picture of Sigmund Freud next to him. (laughs) And then the priest with the Pope uh, framed picture next to him. And they're all just trying to talk him out of it from one way to the other. And the priest has some sort of monologue where you could just tell he's just trying to keep the contents of his lunch down while he's describing what a relationship between a 20 year old and an 80 year old must be like physically in the withered flesh. Yeah. The, the priest is, it makes me want to vomit. And this is where we get the quote that you said earlier from the therapist, that most men want to sleep with their mother. What puzzles me is you want to sleep with your grandmother. (laughs) And really, this is the end of the movie. I always forget how abrupt this is. We go to the last scene of the movie. It's Maude's 80th birthday, and Harold and Maude are dressed up. He's at her house. They're slow dancing. He bought her champagne. He gives her a flower, and he's like, you know, I have another surprise for you later tonight, and he's going to propose to her. And I don't know if she has figured this out, but she basically heads him off by saying, well, that's all wonderful. This is the nicest gift I've ever received. I could not imagine a better farewell. Yes. And that's when he's like, what are you talking about? And she says that she took the tablets an hour ago. I'll be gone by midnight. Yeah, she OD on on sleeping pills. Which was always her plan, and she's not sad about it. She's, you know, kind of resigned. This is the last day, but in her mind, that's the circle of life. I'll be reborn as a sunflower. This is a wonderful moment. And Harold does not quite see it that way. No, it's he just stares at her wide-eyed, and just as he's screaming, "What?" We cut to just the the sound of an ambulance, and uh, and boom, we're in the we're in the back of the ambulance where you know Maud is 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 on, on this gurney, and and Harold is just saying anything he can to just you know stay alive, just you know I love you, and and all she can say in response is that's wonderful, Harold. You know, go and love some more. 
And it's just uh, and, and to him, he's like, never, I can't, I can't, I can't. He, he can't get past the moment, but she's already miles ahead of him. Yeah. And again, everything that she has said through the movie, don't get too attached to things. Things come and go get attached to life. This is the ultimate test. She's like, I was a thing. Go love some more. I've given you all you need to know. This is where I'm supposed to exit stage left. Enjoy life. And Harold freaks out. He takes her to the hospital, rushes her to the hospital. She's going to die. He pleads for people to help her. They can't help her. She's too far gone. And the movie basically ends with Harold jumping in a car. And it's all shot in a montage where it's happening all simultaneously, all these things at once, where you see him driving and crying and panicking and screaming because he's lost the love of his life. And he's driving his Jaguar hearse and he's going to kill himself. He's going to go drive off a cliff just like he's been doing. He's been fantasizing about killing himself for years. And this is where he's finally going to do it. And it's such an amazing montage. It's uh, Cat Stevens' Trouble starts playing, which is just such a phenomenal song. And uh, and it's intercut. It's it's uh, there are scenes in the hospital of of Harold just just pacing, waiting to hear the news just beside himself, distraught. And and while we're you know interspersed with these hospital shots is just shots of him driving in that Jaguar hearse and just peeling around, passing cars, going over the double yellow lines. He's, you know, being reckless and and you just you just so damn worried uh, of what lesson Harold might have taken with all of this time, you know, really just a week that he had with Maud. Um, did he did he get it? Yeah, exactly. Did he take the lesson literally or did he take it too personally? And you see his car go flying off a cliff. He drives off right by San Francisco somewhere on some cliff. His poor Jaguar hearse goes flipping down to its death. And you think Harold is in the car. You think he has finally done it. He finally did kill himself. But the movie has a nice twist ending, doesn't it? Yes, the camera, after really lingering on that car crash for quite a while, uh, it pans up the cliff and there at the top of the cliff is 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 Harold with a banjo strap you know around his neck holding the banjo and and just plucking out um the the opening uh uh notes to uh, if you want to sing out sing out and that's when Cat Stevens' uh, version of the song kicks in, and Harold just, you know, plucks away, uh, moving, you know, along the meadow at the top of the cliff, away from the cliff. That was his last fake suicide. Uh, you feel like, you know, he is ready to move on and to really live a life. And he's actually dancing while he's playing, and it's, it's the most alive uh, we've ever seen him. Yeah, Harold had a chance to choose death at the end, and he chose not to. At the last minute, you kind of get the sense he kind of chickened out and just went the car, made the car go off instead because he's just, you know, things are temporary. Get rid of the car. Who cares? And as he's dancing away, you realize he has chosen life for the first time ever. Maud's spirit has been passed into him. She has, again, been reborn as she was hoping. It's now the spirit is in him. He dances off with his banjo. And it's just one of the sweetest movies I have ever seen. It's so amazing the first time you see it. It really is. It really is. And you just come away with such a just such a, a great feeling. And just knowing that, like, you know, it, we all have a little bit of Harold in us, but none of us are exactly Harold. You, it's hard to imagine someone like Harold really coming out on top. And he does. And just to see how even someone this 
fascinated with death. This person who has given up so much on living a happy life to see him come out um, in this life affirming way where he is just, you know, dancing and, and making music and just marching towards a future that, you know, who knows where he'll be. He'll probably move out of the house. I really hope he does. <laughs> uh, but you just uh, you, you just come away with it thinking like, you know, if 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 Harold can come away with this, uh, looking at life in, in this great positive way, then that's a message we can all really uh, embrace. Yeah, absolutely. And for years I always said this movie was incomparable. I could never think of another movie I could compare to Harold and Maude. It was so different. It's use of, you know, life and life-affirming messages, but dark humor and darkness and just, it's all over the place, but it's ultimately a very sweet tale of hope and life hidden in this dark, dark comedy. But I actually saw a movie recently that I would compare to Harold and Maude for the first time in about 40 years. Oh, wow. What was that? Jojo Rabbit. Oh, I just saw that last. That was our last Friday night movie with my daughter. Yeah, and I was like, this is the closest I have ever seen to Harold and Maude because it's this dark, dark, dark comedy. But underlying, there's so much of a sweet message about life and hope and differences that I just I'm like, that's the closest I have ever seen. It's really it's really interesting you bring that because the, the first half of that movie I was just like, I'm really interested in everything that's happening to this movie, and I'm, I'm, but I'm not making an emotional connection to it yet. But I'm really appreciating it. And then somewhere, and I, you know, without because I, I don't want to give away spoilers to that one, but uh, something happens where suddenly it all changed for me, and and I really became just really engrossed and engaged in the story and and in this kid and just it just took on a whole different uh life for me the second half of the movie which made me i got to see the film again and so i can appreciate the first half in a better way because i don't know why it took me uh, a little while to really get hooked into it but it's it's it really is a pretty special film yeah it's so that's my quick recommendation if you guys like jojo rabbit go seek out harold and Maud. very similar even very similar themes in a way it involves kind of the same dark dark tone underneath but and i just actually mentioned that to a friend of mine who's a film student he's like Oh my God, you just compared Taika Waititi to Hal Ashby. That's incredible. I never thought about that before, but it is, they are real similar to me, just in the same, in a weird way. I think so too. And just, you know, just uh, your fascination being misguided, <laughs> you know, and, and learning to sort of, you know, from life experiences and the people you know and, and the people you side with, um, learning to see life and what's really important in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. So, with that, we wrap up our coverage of Harold and Ma, which to this point is the oldest movie I've done on Staff Picks, although uh -huh. that will not be the same in the future. I'm doing the Poseidon Adventure soon. I'm doing Carnival of Souls at some point. I'm doing uh, Rosemary's Baby, probably. So we're going to get some 60s movies eventually. But up to this point, this is the oldest movie. But one of the movies I feel the strongest about, and I hope that comes through in the podcast. I, I would think it would. I, we're both clearly pretty passionate about yeah. this one. So before we sign off, I will. Uh, do you have anything else to say about Harold and Maude, Bud Court, Ruth Gordon, Cat Stevens, anything? Boy, I think we pretty much so ran the gamut there. I don't know. I think I pretty much so said peace. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry Summers in tight pants. Anything else we want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, if, if you haven't done a uh, if you haven't done a uh, Bad News Bears, well, you did Bad News Bears and Breaking Training, didn't you? I've done both Bad News Bears movies. I did the original as well. Oh, because that original one that I would say Bad News Bears, Harold and Maude, Breaking Away and all that jazz are the four movies that made me uh, uh, want to be a writer. I'm so glad you just mentioned one of those movies because I have been looking for a Breaking Away co-host for the longest time. Sign me up. All right, so Mr. Steve Garvey, the first baseman for the Dodgers here, will return for my Breaking Away podcast in the future. Fantastic. I could talk about that one all day long. Okay, before we sign off, uh, once again, give people a plug how they can find the Barty Bunch because I want to find that myself now. I'm very intrigued by this. Oh, well, the Barty Bunch is currently uh, available for licensing. Broadway Licensing, uh, which is at broadwaylicensing.com, uh, is the agency that represents it. They are licensing it out to uh, regional theaters, uh, uh, professional theaters, and interestingly enough, high schools uh, all over the country right now. In fact, uh, yeah, there's there's a, a few going on uh, right now in Montana uh LA and Utah and it's just a it's a blast to watch this show uh performed by high schools because these are kids who never heard of these shows before but they really embrace just well a you know an actor a, you know high school kid that is you know a theater kid uh just wants to be cast in the show it doesn't really matter what the show is but uh it's amazing to see how wrapped up they get into that brady bunch partridge family rivalry that's very team brady team partridge and uh and it's pretty hilarious to see that come to life um with like you know real teenagers uh killing each other so it's uh it's it's pretty thrilling, but it's a uh, it's it's uh, the, so it's a show that uh, you know hopefully a, a, a local theater will will pick up uh, by uh, by our listeners or if our listeners are involved in high school theater or or regional theater they could just go over to Broadway Licensing and request a, a perusal. All right, well I wish you much luck in the future. I hope some licensing suddenly comes up. Oh, I can't top that. <laughs> okay, and I will say I heard all the places that you have licensed it and where it's being performed, and I'm glad you've brought some joy to Montana because they have so little. <laughs> Sorry. I have a running joke on my Survivor podcast where I bag on Montana, so that's totally fitting. <laughs> okay, okay, come on, big sky country. All right, so anyway, once again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Are you uncomfortable meeting new people? Well, I think that's a yes. Don't you agree, Harold? Should sex education be taught outside the home? Oh, I would say no, wouldn't you, Harold? Yeah, we'll give a D then. Do you remember jokes and take pleasure in relating them to others? Now, you don't do that, do you, Harold? No, absolutely no. Do you often get the feeling that perhaps life isn't worth living? Hmm? What do you think, Harold? A, B? Oh, we'll put down C, not sure. Hmm. Hmm. Is the subject of sex being overexploited by our mass media? That would have to be yes, wouldn't it? <laughs> Do you enjoy...
please. Do you have ups and downs without obvious reason? <laughs> That's you, Harold. <laughs>